0: church who was a farmer who got uh, horribly hurt in a piece of farm equipment. And the thing that stuck out to me, though, was that this church, over the next six months, took care of running his farm for him completely. They would get up early, they would go and feed the animals, they would milk the cows, they took care of the fields, they did all of that for over six months until this man could get back on his feet. And I can remember at the time thinking, that's the kind of church community I want to be a part of. One that loves God, loves God passionately with all of our hearts, but out of that love for God, loves people and loves where they live. You have a great opportunity. I, I, I know Pastor John has already said it, but I just want to encourage you. You have an opportunity to show something of the largesse of God's grace that he has placed upon your life and to be able to demonstrate that, to show that tangibly to another family. And so I'd encourage you to be praying about what God might have you to do in order to bless this family that's in need. And beyond all of that, of course, out in the foyer, we have the opportunity to give to families food that they have need of. So it's like we have two wonderful opportunities to show Warsaw the love of God. So I encourage you to pray about what God would have you to do. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter six as we continue in our series on building a culture of grace? A couple of weeks ago i spoke to you about the righteousness of grace and part of the reason why i gave that message is i think some people have the wrong idea that when god looked at you he loved you so much he thought you were so cute (laughs) that he just said your sins i just forget about it it's okay i love you anyways but i want to say to you that's not the truth i'm not saying god doesn't think you're cute that's not my point My point is, when God looked at your sin, He was offended by it. He said there's a price to pay for sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. So God couldn't just wink at your sin and say, oh, it's okay, shucks, you guys are just such great people. I want you anyways. No, God had to pay the price for your sin with the blood of His own Son. So grace is not just avoiding or ignoring things. Grace actually pays the price in full. And that's what God did. So that was called the righteousness of grace. Today's message is called the immutability of grace. Don't you just love that word? Just say it. Immutability. That's a great word, isn't it? I know it's a word that probably isn't used a lot anymore. But basically, immutable means unchangeable. What I want to talk to you about this morning is there are some things that are in God that are unchangeable. Do you realize that immutability is one of the characteristics of God, one of His character traits? Even though God is always doing a new thing, God never changes in His person or in His character. The passage we're about to read in Hebrews 6 tells us there are two immutable attributes, unchanging attributes, attributes of God's grace, that if you grasp them, they do two things for you. And you see if you don't need these sometimes. First of all, they become strong encouragement for your soul. You ever need encouragement? Well, these two immutable aspects of God's grace, the first thing they do is they give you encouragement in your soul. The second thing they do is they give you an anchor to hold in the time of storm. I don't know about you, but... Last year and this year have been something of a storm for all of us. And we needed an anchor that holds us firm. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are boaters. Any of you guys got a boat? Any of you? Okay, you got a few boats. Okay. Um, I've not been a big boater, but I heard that there's a boating term that's called living on the hook. Do you guys know that term? What it means is that You take your anchor, which is just like a big hook usually, and you drop it so that it grabs the bottom of the lake or wherever you are, the pond, and it holds you in place so that you can't drift. Um, Several years ago, uh, Frank and I and some others went to uh, Camp Asbury over in Perry. And we just spend a day as pastors just to take time away to pray and to seek the face of the Lord together and to share what God is saying to us as pastors of this community. Well, while I was out walking, because I tend to like to walk and pray at the same time, Um, while I was out walking, I noticed there was a boat that seemed to have no one in it just drifting around the lake. And I thought, oh man, somebody's boat came untied and it's just out there floating all over the place. Well, what I found out later from one of my other pastor friends who was down right on the edge of Silver Lake was that there was actually a guy in the boat sleeping, well, he just watched it for a while until he realized the boat was about to run into the concrete ramp at uh, Camp Asbury, and it could have been hurt. So he called out to the guy just before he would crash into that, and the guy woke up suddenly, and they got it under control, and they were talking about it. Well, it turns out the guy thought he was sleeping on the hook. He thought he had anchored himself firmly, and he thought it was a nice warm day so I can actually sleep out here in the sun. Well, the point of this whole thing is And I'm asking you this question honestly. When the storms of life come, and I say when because they will come, do you have an anchor that holds you firmly? Do you have a word of encouragement that speaks to your soul in the deep parts of your being? Uh, We're in Hebrews chapter 6. If you haven't turned yet, Hebrews 6 and verse 13. And by the way, two weeks ago, we looked at God's promise to Abraham, and it was a promise to bless Abraham. So he picks up this kind of thread in Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, back in Genesis 12, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For indeed, men, in, men indeed swear by the greater and an oath of confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. It's like when we were kids and your honesty would be challenged. You would swear by something greater, right? I, I can remember saying, I swear on my mother's grave that that's the truth. Now, the fact that my mother was home in the kitchen didn't matter. What mattered was I was swearing by something greater that was significant and important to me, to let them know the veracity of what I was saying. Verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly. Now, if if you've ever read Hebrews, you need to, next time you read Hebrews, go read Hebrews. And every time you come upon the word more, highlight it. Circle it. Mark it. Because there is a moreness that the writer of Hebrews is trying to Help us to catch. So he says here in verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly than even He did to Abraham, to the heirs of promise, the immutability, there's that term, of His counsel, confirmed it by oath that by two immutable things, in which, by the way, it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. That's that word, encouragement. We might have strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that we sang about this morning, that's set before us. This hope we have as an anchor. There's that word anchor. For our soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we saw a couple weeks ago that God came to Abraham And he said to Abraham, Abraham, considering your non-religious background, the fact that you're a heathen from a heathen city, from a heathen nation, and you know nothing about me, this is going to be hard for you to understand. But Abraham, I'm here to tell you the truth, which is, I'm not here to judge you or to destroy you. I'm here to bless you and to make you a blessing to those around you. And the Scripture says, Abraham believed God, and that belief caused all of the blessing and promise of God to be placed in Abraham's account. And by the way, the same thing can happen for you if you will do the same thing Abraham did, which was simply to believe God and what he has said about how he feels about you. Now, it's almost as if God knew Abraham and we who are gathered here today would have a hard time believing this because it almost seems too good to be true. So God comes along and he says, I'm going to give you a hook to hang your hope on. And what God does is it says, God swore by himself. It's like anytime somebody wants to take an oath and they want to make sure you know that their oath means something, they swear by something greater. Well, God comes along and he says, who am I going to swear by this greater than me? So he swore by himself. It's like if you're in court, I don't know how many of you have ever been in court. I had the opportunity to actually sit on a uh, a jury for a case down here in Wyoming County at the courthouse. And when people would come up, at least at this point in time, when people would come up to testify, they would have to put their hand on the Bible, raise their right hand, and they would swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help them God what they were doing by that was saying i swear to tell the truth and if i don't i am willing to put myself under the judgment of god they swear to tell the truth and nothing but truth when you invoke god's name it's it's like you're saying god if what i'm saying isn't true you come and deal with me um i can remember uh as a kid this would happen probably it probably happened for all of you guys. But when you wanted something, I, let, let's just say, I'll make up a story, I don't remember this at all, but I, it probably did happen at some point. I have a friend whose name was Norm. We always called him Normie. Normie uh, had parents that were richer than my parents. So he had a knife, let's say. A knife that was a really knife, maybe a nice Bowie knife. Remember the Bowie knives, how popular they were? And, and Normie had a knife, and I said, Normie, I would like this knife. And Normy says, you can have it for two bucks. Back then, two bucks was a lot of money. And I said, okay, Normie, I don't have $2 right now, but when I take my grain bags back to Agway and I get 10 cents per grain bag, I will have $2, and I'll pay you then. Normie says, oh yeah? How do I know you'll pay me when it comes time? So what I would do is I would take Howard, who was also one of our friends, but Howard was older than us and bigger than us, and I would say, Normie, if I don't pay you two bucks, you can have Howard take it out of my skin. I didn't swear by my sisters Kathy or Julie because they were girls. They couldn't hurt me. But I could swear by Howie who was big and strong and he could really hurt me. So I would swear by somebody greater that what I was saying was true. Well, that's what's happening here. God is saying to Abraham, Abraham! I want to make a covenant agreement with you and to let you know how serious I am about that I'm willing to make an oath that I will do what I say. But Abraham the problem I have is there's no one greater than me. So I'm going to swear by myself that I'm going to do what I have said. Now, you got to remember what Abraham was swearing to or what God was swearing to. What was God swearing to with Abraham? He says I swear that I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. I will multiply you among the nations. In fact, Hebrews chapter uh, 6, verse 17 takes it even further. Look at it again. He says, In the same way, the same as he did with Abraham, in the same way God desiring even more. God desiring, there's that word, even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose Confirmed it with an oath. In the same way that God promised to bless Abraham and confirmed it with an oath, He says, even more, I want to do the same thing for you. Think about it. Abraham, the father of our faith, the one we all look back to as the forerunner of those who simply believe in God. God says, I want to do even more for you than I did for Abraham if you're an heir of the promise. Well, who are the heirs of the promise? Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ's, if you're a believer today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, born again, saved, blood bought by God, then you're an heir of the promise that the writer of Hebrews is talking to us about. Those who believe the promise the same way that Abraham did. And what's the promise? Again, it's that He would bless you. He says in Hebrews 6, I didn't come to judge you or condemn you. I came to bless you. See, most of the people in the world, based upon how the church often acts, believes that God's mad at them and He can't wait to send them to hell. When we go out and we share the Gospel with people, what's the first thing so many say? You're a sinner and you're bound for hell. Well, i got to tell you, that's not good news. And yet the scripture says the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is, yes, that's true. But God has done something about it. God loves you enough to actually come. And he's even sworn an oath that he will do it. I didn't come to judge you or condemn you. And then he says this, and I swear. And we used to do this as kids, remember? We used to say, I swear, cross my heart and hope to die. That's exactly what God did. God says, I swear, and I'm going to take my heart and I'm going to nail it to the cross and I'm going to die for you. God said, that's what I'm doing for you. That ought to do something inside of your soul that makes a difference. There ought to be something in you that gets excited that God loves you so much that He's committed the entirety of His being. He said, I swear on myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pursue you In fact, I can remember for the longest time I always thought God was following behind me like some kind of spy looking for everything that I could do wrong. And then I came across Psalm 23 where he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall dog your steps all the days of your life. Goodness and mercy. Not judgment and not condemnation. God says, I'm going to confirm my promise by two immutable two unchangeable things and just so you know god says it's impossible for me to lie so what i want to do is i want to look at what are those two immutable things that god is anchoring our hope on so that we can know it beyond any shadow of a doubt that what he has said is true so i want to give them to you they're found in actually chapter 7 through 10 of hebrews i don't have time to read all of it i kind of wish we did because it's amazing section but i want to touch on these two immutable things. The first immutable aspect of grace is this. Jesus is our high priest forever. Jesus is our high priest forever. <coughs> we read it in chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become... High priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews 7, 17. I'm going to go for a lot of scriptures here, so if you're doing it in your phone or on your Bible, just keep moving from page to page. Hebrews 7, 17. For he, God, testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But He, speaking about Jesus, because He continues forever, has an immutable or unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him because He always lives to make intercession for them. So the first reason you can trust the promise is that Jesus is the high priest forever and because he is you can count on the fact that his grace which saves your soul is always at work because jesus never dies he is forever chapter 10 verse 11 and every other priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man jesus after He had offered one sacrifice. So again, it's contrasting. Offerings repeatedly made. One sacrifice for sins forever. Many priests, one priest. Many offerings, one offering. Forever, temporary. For sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. For by one offering, He is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, in the old system, Priests after priests after priests had to make sacrifice for every single one of your sins day after day, year after year, and all of those priests kept dying. That's what Hebrews 7.23 says. We read it. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. They died, and so their work could never be finished firmly established because the people kept sinning and they weren't around to keep offering. They kept dying. They needed a lot of priests and a lot of sacrifice. But this new high priest, Jesus Christ, lives forever. And His sacrifice on your behalf stands today and forever because the sacrifice is Himself who lives forever. So the high priest lives forever and the sacrifice is forever because He is the sacrifice and the high priest. So, let me ask you, are all the sins that I committed before I knew Jesus under the blood of Jesus? Okay. Are all of the sins that I committed after I believed in Jesus under the blood? Are all the sins that I'll commit next week? I'm not planning to, but I'm just saying I know myself. Are all the sins I'm going to commit next week, are they under the blood of Jesus? Why? Because the sacrifice is forever. And the mediator of that, the high priest himself, lives forever. Perfect sacrifice lasts forever. And the high priest himself, who offers that sacrifice, lives forever to make sure that one perfect sacrifice will last forever for me. Now, let me ask you if you're having a good week, is Jesus the high priest? Is he eternal? if you're having a bad week, is Jesus still the eternal high priest? What I want you to get, and what I've been trying to say to you for all of these weeks, and I'm going to continue to try to say for the next weeks, is that you can't lose for winning. Jesus has offered a sacrifice that causes all of your sins to be washed away forever. Your position in God is secure. Secure. It doesn't matter whether you feel good today or not. It doesn't matter whether you feel guilty or not. Your position is secure in God. I was talking with a brother yesterday. And I mean, there are times when you wake up in the morning, you don't even know why, you just feel lousy. And I'm not talking about feeling sick. You just feel like life isn't good. I, I, I asked somebody today, how are you doing? And the answer was, okay. I said, just okay? He goes, yeah, barely. Well, the truth is, every one of us have felt that way at times. But regardless of how we feel, we still have an eternal high priest who is offered one eternal sacrifice for our souls. My position in God is secure. One priest, one sacrifice forever. You can count upon that. You can hang your trust upon that, which is immutable, unchangeable, lasting forever. The second immutable aspect of grace is kind of directly linked to the first, and it's this. Jesus is the mediator of an eternal new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent. In fact, again, I encourage you, go through Hebrews, take note of the superlatives that are used. The words like more, above, all throughout it. The writer of Hebrews is trying to contrast what it used to be like to what it is now if you simply put your faith and trust in Jesus. But now, He has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as He is a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. The writer makes it clear, and I think we would all say it, that it's a better covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. But the sad thing is, many Christians don't know why it's better. They just know that's what the Scripture says. Well, I want to give you Simply two reasons why it's better. Number one, the New Covenant is better because it cleanses your conscience. The Old Covenant only dealt with your actions. It dealt with your behavior. The New Covenant deals with your heart, with your conscience, which w- with what goes on inside of your soul. Hebrews nine it says this, it, speaking of the Old Covenant, was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make Him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. That word perfect, by the way, means complete or not torn, without schism. He's saying, listen, the problem with the Old Covenant is it dealt with the outward behavior, but it never dealt with the inward person. It never dealt with your heart. The New Covenant deals with your heart so that you don't have to be torn inside saying, I feel one way so that makes me feel like maybe there's something in. No, God has dealt with it all once and for all. Hebrews 9, 13 For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh he's talking about outward visible actions how much more say that, how much more, say it again How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more shall the blood of Christ? So much better. In the old covenant, they felt like they were doing pretty well because they would take the sheep, they would give it to the priest, it would be sacrificed, and they would say, my sins are washed away. They're cleansed. They're covered over. And then on the way home, they would sin again. And they'd have to come again. And they did it again and again. Because the sacrifice was imperfect and the priests were imperfect. How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse not only your sin, but your conscience? Hebrews 10:1 says this, For the law, speaking of the old covenant, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. We, we would say it today, something like doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is a form of insanity. That's what was going on. They would do the same thing again and again. Verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness or awareness or thought or preoccupation with sins but in those sacrifices look at that verse verse 3 but in those sacrifices there is a constant reminder of sins every year for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin the very nature of their sin of their system rather was a constant reminder of their sinfulness. Every time you sinned, you had to go and make a sacrifice. Every year you had to go and make a sacrifice. And every single time you were reminded you were a turd. You were a jerk. You were evil. It was a constant reminder of your sin and how desperately you needed a perfect little lamb to cover over your sin. And you had to do it again and again from the time you were born until the day you died. Constant reminder because the priests and the sacrifices all were imperfect. But we have a high priest who is perfect and who is eternal. And we have a sacrifice which is perfect that lasts forever. And because of that, we no longer have to make continual sacrifices for our sin. In fact, The scripture tells us that if you feel like you need to, that's called a dead work. That's what he uses in that scripture. The dead work. A dead work is anything you do to try to earn God's approval. You know, when you get up in the morning and you're not feeling so good, and you're like, well, I'll read my scripture and maybe God will be happy with me. You've just proven that you don't realize your position in Christ. You don't realize what God has done for you. Regardless of how you feel, God has established your position secure forever and you can place your hook upon it. The reason you can trust His promised commitment to bless you is because it's predicated upon a better covenant. One that not only deals with your sinful deeds, but deals with your heart, with your conscience before God. I've heard um, preachers say, the problem that we have in the church today is that we don't preach on sin enough. I had somebody just say that not too long ago. We don't preach on sin enough. Well, I want to tell you, I don't know if there's real value in constantly preaching on sin. I do think there's real value in preaching on the grace of God, which deals with our sin. I think sometimes we become too conscious of our sins, and we end up with a false burden of guilt and shame and unworthiness. Why is it that we who have been saved to the uttermost spend more time thinking about our weaknesses and our failings than we do the grace of God. I don't think concentrating on yourself is going to save you. I don't think doing an inward audit is going to help you a whole lot. I think God's well able to deal with things in your life when and if God wants to. So I would recommend that we put our attention upon Him and not upon ourselves. Because i got to tell you, if you look at me, or rather if you look at yourself, just like I look at me, I know the stuff inside of me. I'm very aware of it. But the truth is God says I still have loved you and I gave my life for you. Why don't you put your attention upon what I have done for you? Again, I'm not advocating or condoning sin at all. Paul talks, should we excuse sin? He says heaven forbid. But living under the law, trying to be perfect, didn't accomplish much for you. It didn't save you. Only God's grace actually saves you. Um, I think about it like this. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever done this. My wife and I like to watch the show Biggest Loser. Guys come on the show, guys and gals come on the show, and honestly, they have major obesity issues. I mean, some of them are huge. We've had guys on there that are 500 pounds, and they've got a major health crisis. And they go through their weeks on the farm or whatever it was called, uh, in the gym, and they lose significant weight. And invariably, every single season, they send this group home to see their family. Now again, they get home and their family looks at them and they look nothing like what they looked like when they went to the farm. They've lost a significant amount of weight. But do you know what I watched over a period of seasons? Those people who went home couldn't enter into the celebration because they were still aware of how much they needed to get better, how much they needed to lose in order to really be who they wanted to be. They couldn't, with their families, celebrate what they had lost because they were so focused on what they hadn't lost. And I think that's the way it is with many Christians. We focus so much on what is still wrong, and we don't pay attention to the truth. We're not who we used to be. God has actually done something in us. He has changed us. So my encouragement to you from the Word of God is let's put our focus looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He started the whole thing. He's going to bring it to a conclusion. And by the way, John tells us in John chapter 3, when we see Him at that point in time, we'll become like Him. Until then, you're always going to have faults. You're always going to have problems. You're always going to have challenges. But that doesn't change your position in Christ. Should we allow God to work on those things? Yes. But let's not let that become judgment and shame. I think too much of church life is shame-based instead of grace-based. Which is why, as I looked at what is the thing that I might preach on over a period of time as I'm leading towards the time when I step down as a pastor, I thought if there's anything I want to preach on is what I have begun to learn from myself more and more over these years. The grace of God trumps the law every time. Uh, Okay, first thing was it can cleanse your conscience. Number two, the reason why it's a better covenant is because it's based on faith and not performance. The writer of Hebrews compares the Old Covenant with the New Covenant saying one was based on the law and having to keep the law. The other one was based on simple faith like Abraham exhibited. So, what's the difference? In the Old Covenant, God came to His people that He had adopted as His own. And God says to his people, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in that covenant, um, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to give you 630 laws. And if you keep them perfectly, then I will love you. I know it's not quite like that, but that's how the people felt. We've got all these laws. How can we do it all perfectly? Perfectly. In fact, the truth is, they got ten laws. Ten laws. Just ten. I mean, ten isn't that big of a list, is it? They got ten laws. And they weren't even like real big ones. They're they're common sense ones. They couldn't last one day. Not one day without breaking it. So what does God do? God comes along in the new covenant. And God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here's my part. I'm going to love you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to place you as the apple of my eye. I'm going to place you in my very heart. And I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's my covenant with you. And the people heard it and they said, okay, but a covenant's two-sided. What's our part? God says, your part is simply to believe me. That that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do all of that. To believe what I have said. My part is all of the work. To love you. To bless you. To provide for you. To care for you. To protect you. All of that is God's part. Our part is simply to believe. Just like Abraham did. It's not based upon your works. You can have a bad day, you can do something crazy, something dumb, like all of us do at times. No one is behind it. beyond that. I've said to you from the beginning, from the time I came here as a pastor of this church 30 years ago, I said, you know, bottom line, it doesn't get any better than this. What you see is what you get. I'm the same here as I am at home or as I'm out in the community. I do the same stuff. I say things wrong sometimes. I say things I have to later go back and correct or things I have to apologize for. We all do stuff. But my position in Christ is not based upon my performance. It's based upon simply believing his promise to bless. Now, I want to be careful, though. I want to end with this. It would be possible that you could come away from here today and say, Pastor Chris said the law was bad, grace is good, and I'm not saying that at all. I don't think the law is bad. I think the law is good because the law comes from a good God. In fact, I think the law is an expression of God's character. And that the more of God you get in you, the less you have to worry about the law because you begin to realize his law is already written on your hearts. It's already beginning to be worked out in you. The law actually is good because the law shows us our absolute need for grace. It shows us all the things that we cannot do on our own, and we need God's grace. We can't keep the Ten Commandments without God's grace or any of the other laws that got added throughout time. We need a savior. We need somebody who comes and doesn't just point out what we do wrong. We need somebody who actually comes and deals with our sin and our heart. The reason why you can trust in the grace of God is because, number one, you have an eternal high priest who offered one eternal perfect sacrifice. And then secondly, because that high priest is the mediator of a new and a better covenant that deals not just with our behavior but deals with our heart and our feelings what's going on inside and when you're faced with storms which every one of us in this room will be you can put your hook of hope upon that would you stand with me he has done it all and his offer stands eternal it's not enough to come to church it's not enough to be a nice person a quote, good person. I told you before, if you went downtown and you asked people, how do I get to heaven? They'd say, you either have to be good or you have to get better, one or the other. God says it's never good enough. Only He's good enough. You have to put your trust in Him. Would you bow your heads with me? God's offer that he made to Abraham, he's making to you. His offer still stands today. If you will simply believe his promise, then you too can know not just eternal life someday going to heaven, although that's true. You can know his life inside of you today. You don't have to keep trying harder. You don't have to keep trying to keep some law. You can actually know the wonder and thrill of sins washed away and grace living inside. Grace for yourself and grace for others. If you're here today and maybe you've never, ever accepted His offer, that offer is being given to you today from God Himself. It's an offer that stands true for eternity. But it's only in this thing called time that we get the ability to opt in. Maybe you're getting tired of just trying hard yourself. It's like, Nothing I do ever seems good enough. And God says, when you get tired enough, come to me. You who are heavy burdened and laden down with a yoke of guilt and shame, fear. He says, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why don't you just take a moment in your own heart and just say, God, I believe you. I believe your promise. It's for me. I want it. I don't want to have to try to work my way into anything. I want to receive because I believe. God, for me personally, I believe your promise that you're for us and you're not against us. You love us. You don't hate us. You're not angry with us. You have loved us so much that you gave your only begotten son. That's how much you loved us you took your heart and nailed it to a cross. Father, we believe you. We believe your promise. And Lord, because of that and the new and better eternal covenant that you've given to us, we no longer have to strive to get our performance in line, but we can rest in you. Thank you, Father for that eternal, abundant, grace-filled life. We receive it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great rest of your day.